Hey, Emily. Hey, Stephanie. You uh, want to do a podcast? Absolutely. Hey there, Cyclecats. Before we get into today's episode, we just wanted to take a minute and tell you about the new adventure we're embarking on. Cycle Chats is starting to partner with nonprofits. These partnerships are to help these nonprofits get the must needed eyes and ears on the amazing work they are doing to better the world and their communities. Helping others has always been the goal of our platform, and we can't wait to start this next chapter of giving back. The first nonprofit spotlight is Women in Distress. Women in Distress is the only nationally accredited, state certified, full service domestic violence center serving Broward County. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and did you know that one in three women and one in four men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime? Domestic Violence Awareness Month is a national effort to promote awareness and prevention of domestic violence throughout the month of October. Help women in distress continue their mission of stopping domestic violence abuse for everyone through their intervention, education, and advocacy. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to Cycle Chats, a podcast to destigmatize what it means to be a woman. This is episode 47, Reclaiming the Narrative on Sex Workers. Today, we're speaking with a woman seeking out the destigmatization and decriminalization of sex work, a human being who believes other human beings should have access to services and support to avoid exploitation, stay safe, and make choices about their own lives. It's Old Pro's founder and executive director and host of the Oldest Profession podcast, Caitlin Bailey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Steph is very excited. She likes when we talk about saucy topics. It's and true. this is it's this true. is a saucy, more ex- saucier. Yeah, kind of exclusive topic. So I'm excited to to dive into it as well. So I always start off with what made you want to get into this field? Oh gosh, you know, like so much of my life is driven by spite, really. And so, yeah, I came out as a sex worker. So so I did I did sex work at two distinct periods of my life, right? The first time was just open rebellion. I came of age during the Bush administration, abstinence only education. I felt like I was being lied to about my body. I also come from money, not like pony money, but like go ahead, major in history money. Like, you know, so I, I had options and there were no immediate survival needs that I was trying to meet, but, you know, prostitution felt like this third rail, right? You know, and so I engaged in sex work, the tail end of high school, early college, really kind of as an experiment, right? Of Like I felt like I was being lied to by the adults in my life about like what it meant to engage in this work and found that it was fine. You know, it was uh, I had way more, you know, personal autonomy and power to negotiate and articulate boundaries than I did trying to do that as a co-ed, right? So it was really kind of a wake up call to go from being a professional, right? You know, being like respected as the professional in the room, you know, hooking up with these these older men to going to college, right? Offering free sex, right, to my peers and being really, you know, sort of like bulldozed past with like with these really clear boundaries and, you know, trying to articulate what it is that that I wanted or what I was looking for. And so that was my first experience. And then I, you know, worked as a stand up comedian for almost a decade in New York City and subsidized that with sex work because the first decade of any career in entertainment 
pays and exposure and other things that people die from. But I didn't make the choice to come out publicly, right, using my real legal name, coming out to my family and becoming an advocate until I found myself in an abusive relationship with somebody who was really trying to weaponize my history as a sex worker against me, right, threatening to out me to my family and trying to, you know, these these old tropes, right, of like anyone who engages in this work is damaged, right? Anyone who engages in this work is mentally ill. Anyone who engages in this work is either incapable of love or unlovable, right? And I had never grappled with it. That was that was never my experience, right? And so to be faced with this in, you know, the toxic dynamic of a classically abusive relationship really brought a lot of this stuff to the surface. And I made the decision after leaving that relationship that I was never going to be intimate with anyone ever again who didn't already know. I was never going to put myself in the position of coming out to an intimate partner. And that is really what started me on the path of telling my story. And what I found is that like when you come out, other people come out. And I got activated politically in 2018 with the passage of SESTA-FOSTA, which was, you know, the Trump administration's effort to erase erotic labor from the internet. So this is when Craigslist erotic services went down. This is when Backpage was seized by the FBI. Rent Boy was raided. There were a lot of places that sex workers had built to keep each other safe, to schedule and screen clients. And all of that went away overnight. I saw the devastating impact that it had. And then as a as a comedian, right, as a free speech person, I recognized the long history and existential threat that really trying to criminalize, you know, erotic expression or this long conflation of erotic expression with exploitation, that's an existential threat to freedom of expression on the internet. And so, yeah, that was in 2018. And and here we are. I feel like I just got done listening to an audiobook. I had to remind <laughs> myself we were in a live recording with one another. And I was like, <laughs> I also went into like uh, listening mode where I just was shaking my head. Yes. It's rare that you have Emily and I's full oh, yeah, attention and interviews. I was, I was completely yeah. in my flow, shaking <laughs> so my head. Sorry. Yes. As I'm listening to you tell me it's a, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a journey and I'm, and I, and I, you know, I, I love telling sex worker stories, right? That's what we do at the oldest profession podcast. That's what we do at old pros. And I love telling my story because I, you know, I don't come from poverty, right? I wasn't experiencing sort of extreme abuse, but like even, I, with all of my, you know, white privilege, citizen, you know, loving and supportive family, found myself in this really vulnerable position where somebody that I thought loved me was able to leverage whorephobia, right, to make me more vulnerable. And the criminalization of that work really only added to my precarity. And I think it's really important to understand, you know, we have a narrative about how people in abusive relationships are forced into prostitution which is absolutely something that happens, right? Sex trafficking in this country looks a lot more like domestic violence than it does like other forms of labor trafficking or drug trafficking. But sex work is also an escape valve for people in abusive relationships. And, you know, this has been borne out in the data. Uh, there was a brilliant sociologist who did a comparative analysis of what Craigslist erotic services, the impact that that had on the communities that it was available in. And it became available in different cities at different times. And what they found is that when Craigslist erotic services became available in a city, the female homicide rate dropped on average 17 
15%. And I think it's because when you lower the barrier to entry and you give sex workers the tools that they need to comfortably schedule and screen their clients from the comfort of their own home, you not only reduce violence against sex workers, but you also create an escape path for people to get out of violent relationships that they might find themselves in. And two, also, I think a kind of along the lines of abortion as well, if you ban something completely and totally, people are still going to find a way to do it. But now they're going to find horrible ways to do it. And the outcome of it is going to be a lot worse than if you just offer them a place where they can safely look into something that is deemed not safe, if that totally. makes sense. No, the, the parallels are absolutely there. Abortion is almost as old as the oldest profession, right? You know, people have been controlling and manipulating their own fertility for all of human history, but we know what criminalization does, right? You're not ending the oldest profession, right? You're not ending abortion. You're only pushing it underground. And we know what prohibition does to markets. It doesn't make them safer. So before we continue with any of this, a question popped into my head, and I just want to clarify and make sure that the people listening also understand, because I'm going to get educated on this, sex workers, what does that encompass? Totally. So sex work is a really broad umbrella term. That means any erotic laborer, right? So that means criminalized, right? Full service escorts or, you know, people providing like prostitution services. It also means, you know, strip clubs, folks that do only fans, wide variety of BDSM or like dominatrix work that may or may not involve like any physical touch, phone sex, foot fetish work. So sex work is a really big, broad umbrella term. And then underneath that, you sort of have subcategories of labor. You have in-person sex work, you know, virtual sex work, right? You have sex work that happens in an establishment, right? Whether that is a strip club or a massage parlor or a traditional brothel. And you have solo sex work, right? Where you're working on your own. And that can happen alone on OnlyFans where you're only doing virtual work, or that can mean going to a client's house. You know, so it's a really big, broad category full of an incredibly dizzying, diverse number of people that engage in this work, both as providers and also as clients. You know, this has always been all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. We tend to think about, you know, women as providers and men as clients, but the reality is actually much more complex. People of all genders engage in this work. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand is that it's not just women. It's everybody and everybody in between, you know, because it doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone. I did a show with someone recently. It turned out he was an adult performer and he's like, yeah, I have mine. He was like showing us his, all of his work and we were critiquing. We were like, that's lovely. Is this, you know, (laughs) but it was, it was nice how open he was about it. And he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, I love my body. I enjoy the company of another man. And I figure if I'm going to make money off of it, as long as we're consenting, we're clean, it's safe. So I'm glad that we made that distinction because I think oftentimes when we hear the word sex work, we're automatically thinking woman. And that's just, that could not be further from the truth. Totally. I mean, we've covered a lot of like cis men on the, on the podcast. We've, we've covered, you know, non-binary folks. We've covered a lot of trans folks. And I think it's also important to recognize that like clients, sort of the, the picture of a client, whether you're talking about a male or female or a trans provider tend to be men, but there are more and more, you know, cis women clients out there, which I think speaks to our 
purchasing power, you know? So it's, it's not that women like don't want to buy sex, right? It's that when you look at, you know, the long legacy of, you know, sexism and the limitations on women's ability to participate fully in public life, the only people that were able to purchase sexual services were royals. And they definitely did that. Well, Stephanie always makes a, a really good point. She always says when we're in our own private discussions, so I apologize, Stephanie, that she thinks that the, and if I am misquoting you in any way, no, I'll, cor- I'll correct you. But she says that the reason that she feels women are acting the way they are now and dressing the way they are is because we've been oppressed for so long. Oh, that we're absolutely. feeling like we just need to like throw spaghetti at the wall and say, here I am. You're going to look at it. That's my big thing is I feel like because we have been sexually repressed historically for such a long time and we were demonized for it, that as a way of taking it back, we've gone the complete opposite way. And we're like, look at my butthole, you know, right, and yes. it's, uh, so it's and it can be very jarring, you know, and then you find you find people who are trying to find balance between that. Right. We want to we want to own that part of ourselves, but we also want to leave a little bit to be desired. And so where do you fit into that? Yeah, you know, and I I have the sense that both of you guys have have done enough therapy to know that there are, you know, benefits and limitations to that kind of sort of like reactionary, but throwing off the, you know, the shackles or throwing off the the externally imposed censorious limitations, I think is just invalid. And I think that, you know, I I hope, I dream, I, I, on my vision board, right, that we get to a future that truly centers and values values female pleasure, right? Like women wanting what they want, being able to express that. But I feel like you're you're absolutely right, right? We went from a place of not being able to be seen to a place of like sort of performative sexuality that does feel very reactionary, but that didn't come with, you know, a lot of information, for example, about like, how large the clitoris is and how it actually works or like more information about the female reproductive cycle. It's like not the bottom of the ocean, actually. We could choose to know things that we just, you know, haven't looked into for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, you know, science and society, we're all playing a big game of catch up on, you know, women's innate sexual desire that is very powerful and not necessarily connected to the male gaze. You know, actually, I think that's a this is a good spot to ask our next question because we're talking a lot historically about a lot of things. So can you give us a little bit of the history of sex workers and when the narrative began to start changing for the worst and why? Well, I mean, sex work and sex workers are woven into our oldest stories, right? There is there is no continent, there is no civilization that doesn't have people providing erotic services, right? This this is older than money, right? And so I think it's important to recognize that for tens of thousands of years, right, sex workers had celebrated places within societies in the like, infertility temples, right? When you go back to the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, right, who was born a virgin every morning and goes to bed a whore or harlot every night, right? She's the goddess of death and war and love and other sort of powerful like life-death life cycles, right? You see her North American counterpart in Plazal Teotl, the ancient, you know, Aztec empire that that worshipped this goddess and, and her priestesses in the House of Women, right, would provide sexual services and engaged in erotic dance. And that was like woven into religion and performance. And so 
temples are the ancestor of churches, theaters, and brothels. And so I think it's important to sort of ground in that history. I think it all starts to go astray, really, when we as a, as a species or as a society get enamored with this idea of paternity, right? Like we could have solved a lot of problems if we just did stuff right through the matriarchal line, right? Because like it doesn't matter how many dates I've had in the last week. We just know it's my baby, right? And it's really hard to have a patriarchy in a society that doesn't know or doesn't care who the dads are. But once you fixate on that idea, women become vessels, right, of men's property, of men's lineage, and controlling the freedom of movement of women becomes very important. And so that, I think, is sort of like the original sin, right, that divides women, right, into harlots, right, and virginal childlike wives, right? And this, you know, goes back to old readings of the the Old Testament, right? The original Genesis story, right? Which starts with Lilith, right? Made from the same clay as Adam, right? His peer and equal who insists on, you know, being on top during sex. And Adam is like, whoa! And then she flees the Garden of Eden to go on her own sexual exploration journey that I think works out great for her. And then, you know, Adam, of course, you know, God makes him the, the consolation prize of Eve, right? From his rib, right? Smaller, more submissive. And so we see this duality really in our oldest stories. You know, the, the Catholic Church, I think, codifies what becomes the Madonna whore complex. But the kinds of like criminalization and the, the the false narratives that we are struggling with today, I think really have their roots in the, you know, the 19th century and the progressive era, right? We criminalized abortion, alcohol, and prostitution all at the same time. And for very similar reasons, it had to do with purity culture. It was all wrapped up in racism, all wrapped up in white supremacy. And in fact, our first federal anti-prostitution law is called, it's the Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Law. This was passed in, in 1910, and it's part of a reactionary period in American politics, right after the Civil War, right after, you know, Reconstruction. It's a, a hyper-racist period in our culture. And so we're looking for reasons to criminalize immigrants and a newly emancipated Black population. And we do that by criminalizing abortion, right? Specifically targeting black midwives, right? Immigrant immigrant midwives who are performing abortion services. Criminalizing alcohol, again, going after the Catholics and the foreigners who are coming here with their with their drinks and their drugs. And prostitution. Specifically, the language of the Mann Act, which is still in the books, is it is illegal to transport a woman for immoral purposes across state lines. And this was sold to the American people as a way of protecting white women, right, from presumed predatory Blacker immigrant men. And just like many of the anti-trafficking laws that we have today, we didn't rescue any sex slaves in the 1910s, but we did prosecute a lot of interracial relationships. So that is like a, a long history and then I think a, a shorter one that sort of takes us into the 19th century. So I'm a theater teacher at a college level and we were just going through different types of theater and we were talking about burlesque and I was like, yeah. do you guys know what that is? And they all raised their hands they're like oh that's like nude women performing like sensual dances I was like well that's the United States's interpretation of what burlesque is so way to go United States for over sexualize something that was actually not what it was intended to be when it started across the pond like it's just for some reason in our and I'm getting fired up I know I know in our lineage which just pisses me off why like just I always think that question why 
Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Puritans came over here and fought for their right to repress others, right? And there's been a strain of that in, in American, you know, society. And this is not a uniquely American problem, right? Like repressing women's bodies and sexual expression is a tale as old as time, not as old as the oldest Puritan, which will always trump that. But, you know, it, it, it it's a very old narrative goes back, you know, Cicero, right? One of my favorite stories is Lycoris, who was actually the favorite courtesan of Mark Anthony. I would argue she is the reason the only reason that we know his name. It is her PR genius, right? And sort of like eye for publicity that allowed him to build the political career that he did. But once he reached a certain height, her proximity to him, right? And his insistence on bringing her to social events and introducing her as a lady, right? Really upset Cicero, who is this like famous prude who essentially insisted that like if Mark Anthony wanted to remain in public life, then she had to be banished from public life. And this is in ancient Rome. He, of course, goes on to become the consort of, of Cleopatra, who was also demonized as a whore. Of course, she was not a sex worker. She was a queen. Sometimes those two things get conflated. Powerful women public women. It's a slippery slope. But, you know, this goes back to, to ancient Rome. And then, you know, today, or I'm sorry, not today. Today is in like the 19th century. You know, Anthony Comstock is responsible for sort of popularizing our obscenity laws. And he did that by going after Victoria Woodhull, right, who is the first woman to have a brokerage firm on Wall Street. She is the first woman to address Congress on the issue of suffrage. And she's the first woman to run for president. And she was an unapologetic old pro and also a spiritualist and like lots of other cool stuff. But her existence upset the young Anthony Comstock so much that he became the head of sort of like the anti-obscenity, passed a law criminalizing, nailing what he defined as obscene content, but he conveniently wrapped in, right? Like, of course, anything pornographic, but also information about contraception. And so his campaign against the erotic included abortion providers, information about contraception, or really information about women's bodies and how they worked. He defined, right, like female anatomy as innately obscene. And I think it's really important for contemporary feminists to know and understand this history because I have a lot of friends, right, that are horrified by the reversal of Roe v. Wade, right, and the sort of imminent criminalization of not just abortion, but information about abortion that were huge fans of Sesta Fosta because they bought into the false narrative that this was a law that was going to protect women and children. And I think it's really, really important to recognize when we empower a surveillance state, when we empower a police state to crack down on erotic expression, policing prostitution is not protection. It is patriarchy and always has been. Here's my thing is who is this hurting? Right. Who yeah. is this hurting other than, let's say, maybe perhaps your husband who is paying for services and that then starts to feel like a vendetta but why are you getting mad at the woman you should be getting mad at your husband right you guys you know need to I mean? sit down and have better and conversations have a conversation. about budgets and boundaries <laughs> yeah, like, so it's i personally think that if you are i because I, I i don't ever feel that if you're in sex work that you're broken or you come from a broken home or anything like that i, I think some women are more in tune speaking strictly to women are more in tune with their bodies i have a friend who sex is very important to her I think it's been rare that she's not slept with a guy upon meeting him, or at least within the first date or well, two. Well, you gotta weed out. You, you have know. to test the car before you, you, you know, you buy it. Very important. Right. 
and correct. And I, I'm noticing myself having that debate now that I'm single and I'm kind of at a place now with my sexuality where I feel very comfortable mm-hmm. to experience and explore. But yeah. it's also there's something that's popping into my sphere, which is I'm starting to feel like guilty. Like if I decide to do it too soon because of outside influence of like you should wait and you shouldn't do it. And you, yeah, you don't want to devalue yourself on the uh, open right. market of, or you don't want to just yeah. give it away. And so there's right, right, now right. this like weird juxtaposition of like me being like, well, I want to experience this, but I also don't want to give it away too soon. But is this too soon? But what are my friends going to think if I, you know, and, totally. and it's this like constant back and forth. And I'm like, why can't I just have the experience? And if the guy doesn't ever talk to me again or girl, then they don't ever talk to me again. Like, you know, it sucks. But I've talked to people who are like, I was six months into a relationship, had sex with the person, and then they split. So timeline doesn't really matter at the end of the day. And that, I'm like, I, I never thought of it that way. Well, I think this goes back to this this old and false division, right? Between like, you know, like harlots and wives, right? And so we've been fed what, what I would argue is like I don't, generations of gaslighting, right? Right? That like you get to decide how men treat you by like how you dress and how soon you like let him have it or blah, 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 blah. And if you give it away too soon, if da, 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 then you're giving him a permission slip to treat you as disposable. It's like, I don't know. What if we just held dudes accountable and responsible for the way that they treat people, period? Right. What if it's just not OK to treat somebody as though they're disposable, whether or not they've ever had sex with you? And maybe treating people that you've been intimate with more respectively should be like the social standard. But instead, we really do have this like sort of like victim blaming narrative that if somebody treat in, in a heteronormative, right, like situation, right, if a man treats you poorly, we have spent hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years convincing women who for huge chunks of that had like no social power, purchasing power, ability to move freely in in public space, blaming them for the way that that men were treating them based on their perceived chastity. And it's bananas. Yeah, 110%. Because as Stephanie is going through her dating journey, I get the information. And as a married woman who has been with her husband for, it's going to be four years, but we've been together for six. Thank you. And, you know, it took me a really long time to find my husband, as I'm sure it did for you, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking also as a married lady. Yeah, right. right? I always tell Stephanie, you just have to get them when their light's on. They're like taxis. (laughs) It's very important. But with Stephanie's dating life, she'll tell me the these faux pas that she goes through and like I've been through them too but it's just crazy to me that we are in this world right now where women are screaming to please please listen to us we know what we're talking about and then for men to not be held accountable like you're talking about why are we not putting more laws into place that men have to get better educated i'm flabbergasted by it why did you let him treat you like that like hey guys why yeah he did that that. yeah right why are we (laughs) just don't topsy-turvy world why are we not raising better boys like that's my thing because like my husband and I will talk about kids and we talk about maybe if we want a girl or a boy and I'm always like girl girl I want a girl but I kind of am at the point where I'm like "Hmm, I kind of want a boy only because I want to teach him how to be a good young man how to treat women with respect or just have the communication to be like hey I'm not looking for anything serious I would love to have your company for the weekend yeah how do you feel about it I mean I just had that experience recently and I was like like, dude, you could, and we talked a little bit more 
you know, in depth about this off recording, but like just to kind of do the the light version of it. I was like, dude, you could have just told me like if that's all it was. And I kept trying to say, like, what are you looking for? And he's like, well, be more specific. And that, and I was like, man, and, and, and that, <laughs> what, yeah, right. And I was like, what are you looking for? Like romantically? And he just kind of, he never had a clear approach to it. And and then I saw how he was behaving and acting. And of course, I think sometimes these men think we're stupid and that we don't pay attention. I mean, like I saw what was in his bathroom there, you know, there was like signs and, and signs and signs everywhere that he was not what he was presenting himself to be and what he was saying he was. And I'm like, it's okay, but just communicate that to me off the gate instead of trying to make it sound like I'm the only one you're thinking of only to turn around and find out that you were literally messaging someone else who didn't have the time for you. So you message someone else on your Rolodex. Like, it's fine, but don't lie to me about it. You know, and I, I just, I want to push back a little bit because like I, I was the person whose light hadn't come on yet in my relationship. I'm delighted to be married. I love my husband. He's awesome. But, like we met in high school, you know, and he's, he was a serial monogamist and I was like not available for partnership for a solid two decades of my adulthood, right? And so sex work was a great, way around that you know like casual dating dating dudes without mattresses also can confirm creates a barrier uh <laughs> to, to part there are other strategies that can be used but it you know I, I think it's interesting that like we assume or a narrative that i was fed right by my you know aunts and the you know the older women in my life was that you know sexual access was something that women traded for commitment and security and i think it's important for us to really think about how transactional that is i was fine with that kind of, you know, explicit transaction when we were able to really talk about it and bring it to the light as a sex worker. But trying to navigate dating stuff, we have sold this idea that like emotional intimacy or, you know, commitment or just treating each other like human beings is some kind of bargaining chip. And it's like, no, I think that we can create a baseline, right, where we're listening to people. We believe people when they when they say what they want or don't want, right? Like, I'm so tired of the narrative where I'm like, ah, I'm not into that. Or like, I'm not interested of like, cool, let me try to convince you harder. Or maybe with threats of violence of like, it's not a seduction technique. That's just intimidating me into doing things I don't want to do, right? The same thing can be said of like, not every heterosexual woman is looking for long-term commitment all of the time. But I think that we can, again, this goes back to being able to own and articulate our desires, right? Because it's like, I feel like we are pathologized either way, right? Like you're not looking for commitment oh cool well you're a victim of trauma you have daddy issues and you're like a hot mess right oh cool you're looking for a committed relationship well you're a needy try hard there's no winning this yeah. right and so yeah. I think that we have to accept ourselves as people and really release this gendered binary around what it is that men and women want because like men and women are people and people are diverse and flawed and mostly a delight hopefully I mean as soon as I said that I was like eh, you know like 40 percent of delight <laughs> believe me I've met some of those 60 percenters so I want because you kind of were talking about it but I, I want to be able to this podcast and the goal is to change the narrative of what it means to be a woman that is our, our whole goal so how can we change the narrative of what is going on with sex work and to make it more positive again 
Totally. I mean, I, I've been doing this work for a long time. I am obsessed with sex worker stories, but I believe that whorephobia is the foundation of misogyny. If we can accept, you know, sort of our internal whore goddess, right? If we can get more comfortable with embracing our own desires and being stronger self-advocates, I think that can go a long way. And I also think that releasing ourselves from policing the sexual choices of people around us, right? You want to have sex? Awesome. You don't want to have sex? Also cool. You want to have sex for money? Fine, right? Like I think that we have invested so much in policing the sexual behavior that we really haven't allowed, you know, women's organic erotic desire, right? We've never had an environment to allow that to to flourish and grow. And I think the criminalization and demonization and stigma around sex work and the proverbial whore and the archetypal whore is a huge part of that. You know, and before we we talk too much about about goddess stuff, I do want to like acknowledge my privilege here and say, you know, sex work is like so many forms of labor, right? Really like all work. People come to this on a spectrum of choice, circumstance, and coercion. There are absolutely people that engage in sex work because they feel called to it, right? That was certainly my experience. There are also people that engage in sex work because it's the best of the available bad options, right? That was my experience the second time round doing sex work. Certainly my experience being exploited as a Starbucks worker. And of course, sex work like many forms of labor, there are people that are coerced, right, by violence or extortion into doing this. But there are also people who are forced into providing domestic labor, working in mines, working in agriculture, working in kitchens. And I think that we can stand together against exploitation without turning prostitution into a symbol of exploitation, which I think is what we've done. You know, 89% of the federal anti-trafficking budget in 2018 was used to arrest consensual adult sex workers, right? That did nothing to alleviate, right, the literal human slavery that we have here of unpaid domestic laborers, the horrific human rights violations that we have happening in mines and in big industrial farms across the country. So I think it's important, you know, like we're going to get woo and I can go with that. But like, you know, like as a right, as a middle class married white lady, right? Like get in touch with your local goddess, but also like stop oppressing everyone around you. That's a great answer. That should be on a shirt. shirt. It's a great shirt. Stop oppressing everyone around you. I feel like you would wear that every day. I would. That would be your shirt. We're going to make one for Caitlin. Note to self, right? Yeah. I'll write it down. Don't worry. Stephanie's giving me this. Stop oppressing everyone around you. Yeah. Cause I think it's frustrating because I'm I'm super sex positive and I love talking about it. I think this is an ongoing debate Emily and I have. And the running joke was, right, like the way you dress is kind of what you attract. And I was like, oh, I'm tired of being sexualized. And so I was like, you know what? When I went to go see this guy, I was like, I'm going to wear something modest, right? Like I'm going to cover up. And then when I called her and like ended up having relations with the gentleman. And even uh... in your modest garb, he didn't get the clear, clear signals that you were sending. <laughs> so in like, your... But yeah. that was that was the thing is I told her, I was like, see, I covered up and I didn't wear what I normally wear. And I ended up in this man's bed at the end of the night. So I proved my point that <laughs> I don't really think it matters what the hell I wear. I think yeah, if, it doesn't you know, matter what you wear. Absolutely. 
absolutely. But I think that like, it does matter what energy you're putting out there. Right. And I think that like, like radical self-acceptance, right. And being like, you know, I want what I want and I'm not going to make any apologies for it is going to get you closer to getting what you want than like, well, what does he want? Like, what if I, what, what, what could I wear to be more like this person? How can I reflect back? You know, and like that whole game I think is self-defeating. I want to go back to the other thing that I was saying one, just one second. Cause I, I do think it has to do with this idea of like internal energy and external actions that I feel like porphobia that comes from other women, right? The like women that don't recognize how they are participating in their own oppression by advocating for like stricter laws or like trying to close the massage parlor or like trying to close the strip club or like doing like their advocacy that's like, how can we put these other women out of work for feminism, right? Like I think a lot of that comes from an innate fear of their the, the archetypal whore within, right? I think they've done so much work, right? Repressing, containing, controlling themselves, right? That they've externalized that. I just wanted to throw that out there. And the rest of it's just, you know, like out and out misogyny. I think because for such a long time, I repressed the way I wanted to dress and, you know, that side of myself. And now I'm like leather and and harnesses. And, and sparkles. You know, like crazy. Yeah, stuff. be yeah, seen. Absolutely. Take up space. Oh, she is, she is seen, believe me, not just because of what you're wearing, but Caitlin made a very good point. You have a very good, and I will cut this out, but you have a certain energy, Stephanie, that you put out there when you are wearing something that makes you feel good. It doesn't have to be sexy or for you to show anything. Like when we wore our tie-dye dresses to Podfest, you were like walking down the hall, like you freaking own the building, man. It's the energy that you're putting out there. That's my part of the argument is that I don't care what you wear, but it's the energy that you're also putting out there. I'm going to get the train back on the tracks, even though this conversation has been just, I mean, life-changing. I'm excited to go back and edit this. So I always like to end the podcast with what does women empowerment mean to you? I think it means women doing what they want. Is that too simple? No, it's beautiful. And then my last question for you, since we were just talking about younger self, what advice would you give your 15-year-old self? To get into weightlifting and boxing. I feel like I told I told my younger self that I didn't like exercise. And really what was more true is that I didn't like running. And I feel like I was afraid of weightlifting. I believed two simultaneous and conflicting things, right? Which is one, that I couldn't lift weights. And two, if I did lift weights, I would turn into like a She-Hulk overnight, which is like not a thing that happens unless you're taking steroids. But I am discovering physical fitness really for the first time as like a person in their mid thirties and combat sports are where it's at. Like I would have loved boxing as a young person. I wish that I had discovered combat sports earlier because I love it. It changes the way I move in the world. It's a lot of confidence. I love boxing. There's something about it. Where you're just like, I am un F with a ball. Yes. There's just a, there's a power to it. Totally. So I feel that. Yeah. So I, I wish that I had discovered combat sp- sports earlier. This has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And I love the fact that we can have a healthy debate. Totally. We're always really big on being educated about our different viewpoints. We love when people come at us and we're they're like, hey, do you think about it this way? And so I think this was a really eye-opening conversation, a necessary one, one that needs to continue to be had. And hopefully through the generations, I think we will continue to have yeah, it. For sure. We'll- this is not... 
this is not over. No, it's never ending. I think this is going to be ongoing as long as there are men, women and everything in between. It's going to be a conversation that is always had. So I certainly really appreciated it. I feel more empowered and educated. And there's a lot more for me to like mull over and think about as we get off this. But I would love to know because we obviously know where to find you. But where can people find you? And do you have any fun projects coming up that we should keep our lips open for? I do. Well, my organization, Old Pros, sends out a weekly newsletter every Friday. It's a roundup of sex worker rights related news. And you can sign up for that at oldprosonline.org. I really encourage folks to sign up, especially if you're curious about this topic. You know, we try to keep things light and, you know, in, in digestible bites. And I have a one woman show in development called Whore's Eye View. So it is 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. It's part stand up comedy part aggressive lecture, part, you know, emotional one woman show. I've been working on it since 2019, but then like 2020 happened and it was a lot of stuff. So I, I've gotten the show on its feet. I'm in Pittsburgh. I'll be in Austin. There are going to be lots of readings in New York. I'll be in, in North Carolina. So get on our email list at oldprosonline.org and, you know, keep an eye out for an opportunity to see me perform live because I'm good at this, actually. What? We couldn't tell by the way you spoke into this microphone. <laughs> Just a strategic hair flip there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's cool. Yeah. I love that. Oh, man. This, Thank you. This really was great and probably will go down as one of my favorite conversations we've been able to have over this almost two years. You are extremely intelligent, well-spoken, and a real voice for something that needs to be voiced because the minute that somebody hears you speak, you get gears turning. And so thank you for doing that for thank us you. because I'm walking away from this conversation with so much more knowledge and understanding. So that's like, I'm grateful for that. I hope our listeners are grateful for that. I know Stephanie is grateful for that and will lead to a lot of further discussion between the two of us. This was just amazing. So thank you so much, Caitlin, for giving us some of your time. As Steph says all the time, time is precious. You can't get it back. Money, you can make more, you can make less, but time, totally, is, it's gone. That that hour and a half that we just spent together will never be back. I really appreciate you guys taking the time, making the time and creating the space for this conversation. You know, I know it can be, you know, not everyone is is willing to hold space for this conversation. So I really appreciate y'all coming to the table and and letting me talk about my favorite thing. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't do a plug. If you if you guys love this, I, I do have a podcast, The Oldest Profession, where every episode we do a deep dive in a different sex worker from history. Take a look at our at our library and I think you'll be surprised at some of the folks that, that are on there. And there's a lot to learn. That's amazing. I, you got one more listener today. Maybe probably two. Oh, I've listen. already listened. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. Stephanie. Like, well, because it's, it's, it's your voice. You know what I mean? It's just the way that you Thank speak you. is very, it's, it's, Commanding. it's very good. I don't yeah, know. It's real good. Yeah, it's, it's all great. It's good. Tens across the board. Yeah. 10, 10, 10 from the Russian judges. <laughs> so thank you listeners. Once again, I hope that you took something from this and you know where to find us at cycle chats on Instagram. You can check out our website, www.cyclechats.com. Also make sure to check out our new totally unedited show on YouTube chit chats with cycle chats where Stephanie and I have very healthy debates and just have a good time chit chatting away. And sometimes you'll see my cats. You just never know when they're going to make an appearance. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you a million times. And as always, we hope you sync up with us next time. Mm -hmm.